Let me just begin with a couple verses I want to read to you that will kind of set a course for where we're going, and then I'll share some kind of personal information about myself. But I, I want to get these on your minds as quickly as I can. So the first one is Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Let me read that to you. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That one probably sounds familiar to, to most of you. If you've uh, been around the church a little bit, you hear that one. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then the second one I want to read to you, this is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I hope today to connect those two thoughts for you. But let me just share. Um, uh, it's such a privilege to be here with you and to be back in Michigan. I'm from Michigan. I grew up in Owasso, Michigan, right in the middle of the state. It's actually uh, a couple uh, old family friends here that now live on the west side, but people that I know from uh, my Owasso days uh, that are here visiting. And um, and uh, about four years ago, my wife Tiffany Hecht and I moved from West Michigan to Rapid City, South Dakota, which is, we live like 20 minutes from Mount Rushmore, like uh, the southwest corner of South Dakota. We've been out there for about four years. I'm the creative pastor at Fountain Springs Community Church, which is a Wesleyan church, multi-site church, kind of I, I, I'm at sort of like the central office position in charge of like television production, worship, music, lights, haze machines, all that kind of thing. But what I'm most passionate about is teaching and preaching and talking to people. And so uh, it's so great to be with you today and to share some thoughts. I need to get moving because I went too long in the first service and I want to make sure I don't do that with you today. And I have a lot of things I want to share. And I want to begin by talking to you about that first verse I read with you from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. I want to share some thoughts about God's kingdom and what, it, what our lives are supposed to look like when we're living as a part of God's kingdom. And just as a word of caution, uh, I hope to at least at some point today say something sharp enough and pointed enough that it nearly offends you, that you nearly think about walking out or something like that, and you truly, you, you must not, but... Uh, I, I need this to feel heavy because uh, wh where we're hoping to end today has some potential to change my life and yours. So on the matter of the kingdom, Jesus tells his audience in Matthew chapter 6, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, uh, but seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. And in the context of Matthew chapter 6, he's actually responding to some dialogue with his disciples. They're asking him questions about possessions, earthly possessions, and specifically like basic needs. What should we do about food? Should we worry about our clothing? Should we worry about our shelter? These like sort of basic human needs. And Jesus says as a, as, as a, uh, as a qualification for living a life well, he says, before you even worry about all of those things, as justified as they are, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness before anything else. But what do we mean when we talk about God's kingdom? Well, God's kingdom is the realm where God reigns in fullness, where everything happens as God intends for it to happen. There's no sin in God's kingdom. There's no 
adjusting his will, his plan, his purpose. In God's, in the fullness of God's kingdom, things happen as he intends. In Matthew chapter 6, a little earlier, verse 10, just about 20 verses earlier, his disciples are asking him how to pray. And in the midst of this prayer, he offers them, he says, when you pray, pray that God's heavenly kingdom, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here as it is there. That God's heavenly kingdom would break into this fallen earthly kingdom where things don't happen as God intends. And this would be accomplished as the people of God, filled with the indwelling of his spirit, live out the way of righteousness. But what is meant by righteousness? Well, the righteousness of God makes us fit for citizenship in the kingdom of God. It's God's holiness. God's goodness. In God's righteousness, he intends to save you and me, each of you. He intends to save you and me and then through us to save all things, to restore you, put you back together again. And then through you, we become the hands and the feet of Jesus in the world, putting all things back together again. God's kingdom and his righteousness. God wants to save you and me And through us, save all things. But here's the question. What is God saving us from? Right? The answer is S-I-N. God wants to save us from sin. Let's take a closer look at sin. When we talk about sin, there's sometimes like a twofold definition or twofold problem of sin. First, there are our actual sins. Our actual sins. These are voluntary transgressions. Of God's command. Again, this is Wesley's definition. It's you know what God tells you to do. You know the law. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. But you choose to do otherwise, right? Actual sins, plural. Sometimes they're sins of omission. They're they're things that we don't do. Often, more often, they're sins of commission. They're things that we do that we shouldn't be doing. Sometimes they're inward, and they look more like lust or prejudice or rage. Sometimes they manifest outward. And they look like violence or theft, something like that. Actual sins, plural, things that we do that violate the law of God. But then there's a second definition or problem of sin that we'll call inbred sin. Sin that is born from within. Sin singular. And this is often like the condition of sin. We sometimes call this inherited sin or original sin. And Actual sins, how did I do this? Actual sins are the consequence of this inbred, inherited sin. Because we have this condition, sin singular, it works itself out. The symptoms of that disease are the actual sins that we commit or, does that make sense, violate the law of God in our lives. More on that in a bit. So if God wants to save you and me through us, save all things from sin, how exactly is that intended to happen? What is the way of salvation? How does it work? Well, what I'd like to, you to do is imagine that there is a, you know, a, a green door right here that goes, can you see this green door right here? There's no windows in it. It's solid green. There's a green door right here that goes down to the floor. This is door number one. And I'd like you to imagine there's a blue, yeah, no, 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 this one's supposed to be red. It doesn't matter. It's a green door. And this door is blue, right? 
There's a door here that goes down to the ground. This one's blue. There's a green door and a blue door. Nod your head if that makes sense. All right. I want to use these two doors to talk to you about God's way of salvation. <clears throat> I don't think it's a surprise to you to hear uh, that in the earliest chapters of Genesis, we're told about the fall of humanity, that God created everything, including you and I, exactly, precisely as we were supposed to be. But at some point, Adam and Eve committed this first sin and they triggered this reaction. And what was in it, we were initially created in the divine image, in God's image, and now all humans will sort of inherit, because of this first sin, we will inherit a corruption of our spirit. We will inherit a fallen, sinful nature. We're born into it. Outside of anything we've actually done ourselves, we receive this inherited original sin. We yearn for what is evil. We are totally depraved. We are totally fallen. We are utterly sinful, utterly wicked. We are incapable of righteousness now because of this break in our relationship with God. Does that make sense? Incapable. I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm not attempting to compliment you right now if it seems like I am. We are wicked through and through, incapable of pleasing or honoring God, right? But God, actually, let me read this to you from Romans chapter 3. There is no one, Paul's writing, there is no one righteous, he says, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I'm not saying this for effect. I truly mean this. We are all wicked and evil through and through because of our inherited corrupted nature. In our depravity, in our lives, sin reigns. We're incapable of anything else. But, God has not left us, abandoned us, in our, like, predisposition to sin. Instead, through God's prevening grace, he's actually reached out to every human being, every soul, and he's, like, planted almost like this seed inside of us that gives us the ability to hear his voice and to respond to it. He's restored, like, the capacity, right, to respond to his invitation when we hear it, if we hear it, through God's prevening grace. Prevenient is often a word that's best understood in relationship to convenient. Convening, prevening. At some point today's gathering service convened. You know what that means, right? It began. But there was a tremendous amount of prevenient work that went into making it happen. J.D. drove up from Chicago this morning, right? That's prevening work so that he could be here to make this happen. Pastor Christy and I have exchanged messages back and forth over the last several weeks, preparing for this morning. Songs were chosen, uh, practiced, rehearsed, right? There were folks here at 8 o'clock this morning rehearsing. There is this prevenient work before the work, work that makes the, the convening even possible. Before God convenes a relationship with any of us, he's established this prevenient work inside of all of us, restores to us the ability to respond to his voice, okay? Then, in response to this twofold problem of sin, 
God offers a twofold solution of grace. And the first kind of grace I want represented by this green door over here. We're going to call it God's saving grace. Okay? In God's saving grace, this is door number one, God draws us near. He speaks to us. We hear God's voice, and we become aware, convicted uh, for our sins. We become aware of the guilt and the shame and the punishment, impending punishment, and even present for our sins. God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, the presence of his Holy Spirit, makes us aware of our sin, our sins, our actual sins, the things that we have done, and we experience conviction. We confess our sins. We receive his forgiveness. First John 1, 9. We confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive our sins, right? That's the promise. This is the moment of initial salvation. And many of you have experienced God's saving grace. You've had a moment where you heard the voice of God through a sermon or a song, maybe standing on a mountaintop. You heard the voice of God. You were aware of your sinfulness. You repented, and God has promised to to forgive you to release the guilt, the shame, and the consequences of your sin. And you have this promise that you'll spend eternity with him in heaven. You are a new creation is the language we sometimes use. We say you are born again. The old you is dead, is gone, and now a new you has come to life free from the guilt and the consequences of your actual sins. Not along if you mostly agree with what I'm saying right now. That makes sense, right? Initial salvation. <clears throat> when we repent, we are regenerated and given new life. And, and I hope you've experienced that. And if you haven't, maybe, maybe um, Pastor Christie or myself would love to talk to you about it afterwards, that, that first feeling of or, or, or work of forgiveness and grace. But here, here's one of the problems. Oftentimes our conversations about God's grace end with this green door number one. God offers his saving grace. You are, you're convicted, you feel bad, you offer forgiveness, you're going to heaven, moving on, right? And this is where our conversations end. But God wants to do more than just release us from the guilt of our sin. He wants to do a separate work altogether. So I want to talk to you about this, which one's this, blue? <laughs> Door number two over here, God's sanctifying grace. With door number one, we experience forgiveness. But with door number two, God wants us to experience holiness, sanctification. Back to that chapter or that verse I read earlier from 1 Peter, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should, t- should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And then one more, Romans chapter 12, 
verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, 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 and pleasing to God, which is your true and proper worship. God's saving grace gives us freedom from the guilt and the punishment of sin, but God's sanctifying grace is intending to do something else entirely. Sanctification and holiness are like these old, forgotten, exiled, abandoned words. They scare people. We often say, you know, ah, you're just legalistic or something like that. And we've stopped talking about the the additional work that God wants to do in our lives after he saves us. But sanctification represents freedom from the power of not just that first kind of sin, our actual sins, but freedom from that second kind of sin, that sin that's born from within, inbred sin. God wants to set us free from our sinful nature because the main goal of the Christian life is not to get to heaven with a heart full of sin. And I, I've known people over the years who've said things like, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm just human. I'm a sinner. I'm going to sin. But God doesn't see my sin when he looks at me. He looks at me through the blood of Jesus. And someday I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I'm sorry. That is wrong. That is bad theology. God forgives our sins, yes. But we don't have permission and license to just keep doing them, trusting that, like, that, that, it, you know, the, the blood of Jesus covers it. There's no change in our lives. That is not the story of salvation. If I can see my sin, if I can see your sin, God can truly see your sin, right? If you can see my sin, God can see my sin. And here's why it's important, because the problem that we face as humans is not hell. It's sin, I say that again, the problem isn't hell, it's sin. Jesus didn't come to save us from hell. He came to save us from sin. And actually, the New Testament says this almost everywhere. He came to save from his birth, right? The prophecies, his own words. He came, of course, there's a number of other things that happen along the way. But the work that he's come to do is to save us from sin, There's this great quote by Oswald Chambers. He says, continually restate to yourself what the purpose of your life is. The destined end of men and women is not happiness nor health, but holiness. What this whole thing is all about is holiness. Saving grace is just like, it's just getting us to, right? This is a, this is a passageway to God's sanctifying grace the further work that he wants to do. But this isn't the end. The end is holiness, as Chambers says here. The end of Christianity is liberty, not just from the punishment for actual sins, but for the bondage of our inbred sin. And that's the word with sin we should use, bondage. When we are trapped in sin, I can see your faces right now. Can I just say this sermon is about as much fun to preach as it is to listen to? You know what I mean? But sin keeps us in bondage. It destroys our lives. Some of, some of us have been battling sins for longer than we can remember. The same sins for longer than you can remember. Years. 
maybe a decade, telling yourself you're not going to do it, you go right back into it. Yeah, you're forgiven, but God wants to set you free. We come to church, we serve, right? Raise our hands when we, when we worship. We sing, we sing, um, you laid down your life that I would be set free. The freedom isn't from the punishment of hell. That's the consequences of sin. The freedom Jesus is offering you is from the sin itself. That's what this is all about. That's why sanctification, why the second door here has so much to offer us. Many of us are saved and we are forgiven and we are going to heaven when we die, but we are still living in bondage. And probably if I followed you around for a few days, if you followed me around for a few days, we'd, we'd be able to kind of spot what those, what those traps are in your life. See, God's saving grace, let me try to explain this just a little bit better and then wrap this up. God's saving grace brings pardon, but God's sanctifying grace makes us pure. With God's saving grace, door number one, we're, we're criminals in need of mercy. But with God's sanctifying grace, we are slaves in need of liberty. Can you see the difference? Door number one takes us out of the world. But door number two takes the world out of us. It's a cleansing. But it's a different sort of work. See, actual sins can be forgiven. But this inbred sin has to die. The sinful nature, it, it can't be forgiven. It has to die. It's an utter rebellion to God. What is Augustine says? Utter contempt for God. It has to die. And whenever Jesus and his disciples talk about God's saving grace, you know the images they use? Being born again, coming to life, new birth, new life, right? But when they talk about holiness, they talk about death. Lay down your life, crucified with Christ, surrender everything. Oswald Chambers, if you ever go through his devotional, My Utmost for Us Highest, early on, it's somewhere in January, he introduces you to the concept of your white funeral, your last day on earth when you aren't fully surrendered to God, when you die before you die. That's what God's sanctifying grace has to offer. For almost 30 years, my stepdad, I was raised by my stepdad. My stepdad worked at a <clears throat> he worked at Johnson Controls. He worked at a, a factory in Owasso, Michigan that made <clears throat> that made batteries for Ford trucks. And uh, most of my life, he worked third shift, and he had this black lunchbox, and it was one of those ones with the two clips on the front flipped open, and then the thermos, you know, kind of locked up at the top. And um, and uh, as long as I can remember him going to work, I remember him carrying this thing. And there was a bumper sticker across the top that he didn't put on his truck. He put on this on this. Uh, lunchbox, and it said this. It said, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've seen it on a bumper sticker. Now listen, I love and respect my stepdad more than, you know, almost any man who ever lived, and, and uh, he was my father in the truest sense of the world, word, and I, I don't want to disrespect him here, but what's wrong with his bumper sticker is that it's not true. Christians most certainly are being made perfect, 
And that's kind of the whole point of this thing, that God is saving us from sin. Yes, we're forgiven. Of course we are. But that's not where this conversation ends. We are being made perfect. God wants to free us from the presence, the being of sin in our lives. And I know that seems like a big statement, right? But we all agree there's no sin in heaven, right? Nod your head. We all agree there's going to be no sin in heaven. So when do we get set free from it? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it when my physical body dies? Is the sin in my flesh, like the Gnostics in the New Testament said, right? Is it that my flesh is wicked? I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about something else in there. This wicked disposition, a sinful nature. And God's saving can, grace can do so much. But there's another kind of work that he wants to continue to do. And I would say ultimately finish in our lives. He wants to set us free from sin singular. Scripture tells us over and over again to be holy. Be holy, be holy, and not by like some magic trick where we pretend it's us, but it's actually Jesus. No, it's a very serious statement. Be holy. We're not called from like bigger sins to smaller sins, one sin to another sin, many sins to fewer sins. You're called from darkness to light, from impurity to holiness. That's the call, and that's what's offered through God's sanctifying grace, freedom, liberty, Because, folks, sin is misery. It's absolute misery. Listen, uh, you all know this. Anyone who tells you that sin isn't fun is lying to you. Or they didn't grow up where I grew up. But, like, of course it's fun at first. Of course it seems like it's good at first. But give it a day. Give it a week. I'll bet you dollars to donuts I'll find you on your knees begging that you would die begging for anything to be free from sin. It's always fun at first, but it destroys us. Sometimes it's like, it's substances, it's an addiction to a drug or alcohol. I mentioned in this first service, I have a very close relative who has been an alcoholic for a long time. She's destroyed every relationship in her life, everyone, over and over again, lost every job, lost every dollar she has again and again. She wants to be free, but she's in bondage. And the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that God will pour out his Holy Spirit on us in a way that sets us free from our sins. And maybe not all of them all at once. But there's work that needs to be done beyond forgiveness. There's this other therapeutic, restorative work that needs to be done. God wants to make us whole. He wants to heal us. So here's what I want to do. I want to to close with a prayer, a prayer for for all of us in this room. But before I do, I want to, well, not for all of us in this room, I suppose. I want to pray for anyone in the room who might want to receive, open themselves up to, give permission to that that, that indwelling fullness of the Holy Spirit today. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you want to be set free from the bondage of sin, I'm going to ask you to just raise your hand real quick. And I'll scan the room. If you want to be set free from the bondage of sin, I'm just going to scan the room. And then I'm going to pray for everyone who raised their hands, okay? Would the rest of you join me in bowing your heads?
Almighty God, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for the thoroughness of it, Lord, that you you have given us the ability to hear your voice, Lord. You have saved us from the guilt and the punishment of our sins. And Lord, you desire to set us free from the captivity of our sins. But Lord, that captivity requires a certain kind of death, a dying to ourselves, Lord. And I pray for those folks who raised their hand today, Lord, that you would reward their courage and their assertiveness. God, that you would, um, in response to their desire to be free from the bondage of sin, Lord, I pray that you would pour your spirit out into their souls, Lord. Fill their souls with the presence of your spirit. They can't do it on their own. None of us can. But when your spirit is living inside of us, we are capable of accomplishing your will. So God, fill them with your spirit. Pour your spirit out into their lives. Give them a, um, a joy, uh, an assurance of the work that you're doing, Lord. Set them free from the bondage of sin. God, thank you for that offering and for that promise. We're so grateful. Make us into a holy people. And then through us, Lord, would you use us to go into the world with unhindered love for you and for neighbor. If we're ever going to see the kingdom of God come to earth, it's going to be when we're surrendered to you and we allow your spirit to pour through us. Rid us of sin, Lord. We love you in your name. Amen and amen.